Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks on a rainy day here in New York. Our guest today is sitting in sunny Florida. He's figured something out that the rest of us haven't. But I'm, I'm John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during the pandemic with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And really what our goal is during these SALT talks is to replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT conference. And that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Joe Scarborough to SALT talks. A former congressman, Joe Scarborough is today the co-host of MSNBC's Morning Joe, alongside his wife, Mika Brzezinski. A Morning Joe starts each weekday conducting interviews with top newsmakers and discussing the day's headlines. In 2016, Joe was joined by co-host Mika, and they were both inducted into the Cable Hall of Fame. Uh, Joe was named to the prestigious Time 100, the list of the world's most influential people, and Vanity Fair named both Joe and Mika to their 2012 list of top media power players, and their influence uh, in the media has only grown since then. In addition to his television career, uh, Joe is a two-time New York Times best-selling author. His work, Rome Wasn't Burnt in a Day, predicted the collapse of the Republican majority and the U.S. economy due to his party's reckless spending. His second work, The Last Best Hope, Restoring Conservatism and America's Promise, draws on the forgotten genius of conservatism to offer a roadmap for the movement and the country. Joe's most recent book, Saving Freedom, Truman, the Cold War, and the fight for Western civilization recounts the historic forces that moved Truman toward his country's long twilight struggle against Soviet communism. Truman's triumph over personal and political struggles that confronted him following his ascension to the presidency is an inspiring tale of American leadership, fierce determination, bipartisan unity, and courage in the face of the rising Soviet threat. A reminder that Joe served as a member of Congress from 1994 to 2001, and while in office, he was a member of the Judiciary, uh, Armed Services, Oversight, and National Security Committees. A reminder for everybody tuning in today, if you have any questions for Joe during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT, and he did also serve in government, but for only 11 days as opposed to uh, the seven years up, uh, that Joe. Joe spent in Congress. He's, I'm so, telling you, with that, I mean, Joe, it's bonus season, okay? And he knows he could get fired, and we're in a pandemic. He knows he could get his bonus cut, but he's got to bring up the fact that I got fired after 11 days, right? Yeah, I tell you, I was, I was, I, I almost retweeted it. But I decided not to when, when somebody said we are only two Scaramucci's away. Oh, no, that you could do. I, I, I got the whole Scaramucci shot clock going right now. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're 51 days away, Joseph. So, you know, uh, we'll see what happens here. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about him as well. But I really want to talk about the book and I want to hold it up for everybody. Uh, Saving Freedom by Joe Scarborough. I uh, read the book over the weekend. It is a Pretty quick read, by the way. It took me about five and a half hours to read it. Uh, I did listen to some of the audio tape by Joe Scarborough as well. Uh, and Joe, I, I, I love the book for a number of different reasons, but the main one is it draws a lot you, you know, about where we were as a society 
80 or so years ago, 75 years ago, and where we are today as a society. And basically, you know, my summation, there was a lot of very, very good human beings that were willing to work together that understood that a bipartisan commitment to peace would lead to global prosperity, not just for the United States, but for the world. And so there were a lot of bold decisions made. Uh, and so my, my first question to you though, before we get into the book, is tell us something that we can't find on Wikipedia about Joe Scarborough. You know, you're a pretty well-researched guy. So what, what would we learn today about you that nobody really knows? Oh man, I, that's a tough question. Um, I'll say this just so you can laugh. It's the truth, but nobody would believe it. So I've never even bothered saying it publicly. I hate being on TV. I, Mika loves it. Like Mika is like, Mika got it. See, you're laughing. I see him laughing at me. Mika got, in, Mika got into um, TV news when she was 22, 23 and absolutely loves it. If she weren't on TV, uh, she would, um, you know, it, it, it would be like she was missing her right arm. Uh, I do it <laughs> bluntly because it pays pretty well. And also people seem to think uh, they still want to hear what I have to say, but I hate being on TV. I've never once, and this is so unlike me because I'm sure you guys are all this way. Uh, if when I do something, I go back and I look at it, I examine it, I see where I make mistakes, I see how I can be better. And I'm really, I'm my toughest critic. I've never done that with television because I can't stand to see myself on TV because the few times I have, I go like, why does anybody watch me? Man, it's, so uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, favorite show, television show, uh, remains Peaky Blinders on Netflix. If you haven't seen Peaky Blinders, yes, yes. make sure you see it. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that, that is a sensational miniseries. Again, that's about the, it's about the uh, UK mob, right? Is that is that yeah. the UK mob? Yeah, guy, guys uh, post World War One that 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 left the war shell shocked and uh, started a gang in Birmingham. But uh, Anthony, you don't believe that I don't like being on television, do you? I, I I get it. I mean, but look, I you know the most dangerous place in the world, Joe, is between me and a television camera. So I would be racing Mika for the camera, right? We all know that, right? I mean. Oh. Lucia, and then there's that zone between me and the camera. So, so exactly. I, I get it. Tell Amika, I can totally identify with her. Um, let's go to the Truman Doctrine, though, because uh, what's fascinating about the book is it's it's a bubbling up process, right? It's not like when we look back through history, we say, oh, the Truman Doctrine, these guys sat around in a room and they came up with the Truman Doctrine, but that's not really how it happened, right? It happened through a bubbling up process, a little bit of George Kennan, some of Dean Atkinson, some of Harry Truman himself. Tell right. us how the Truman Doctrine evolved uh, before uh, President Truman made his speech to the joint session of the Congress. Well, so, so the Truman Doctrine, first of all, for, for those who obviously haven't read the book yet, uh, the Truman Doctrine is it was, was when Harry Truman uh, made, made it clear. It was sort of a follow-up on the Monroe Doctrine where uh, President Monroe said, anybody that comes into our hemisphere, uh, you're basically asking for war. Stay, stay out of our hemisphere. Um, but the Truman Doctrine uh, was Harry Truman uh, and uh, the, the, the rest of the United States 
declaring that we would get involved uh, for any country, any democratic country who was under threat from the Soviet Union, uh, even though we didn't use the Soviets name specifically, it was very clear what they were talking about. And it really, it, it, it came out of a time where, where Harry Truman had an extraordinary few years. He had been uh, selected in 1944 as FDR's vice president. Uh, FDR knew he was going to die. Uh, Truman knew FDR was gonna die. In fact, FDR famously said to Harry Truman, hey, don't fly on planes during the campaign because one of us has to stay alive. Truman also, his friends told him FDR was dying and he said he knew it and he was uh, scared, scared as hell to be president but knew he would have to be. And uh, after his first cabinet meeting as president of the United States, uh, Stimson took him uh, to the side and said, hey, listen, I got something to tell you. And actually revealed to Harry Truman for the first time details about the Manhattan Project. FDR had been, there's no other way to put it, he'd been extremely reckless. He had only met with Harry Truman two times when Truman was vice president, didn't have him read in on anything. So when we have uh, uh, people, uh, obviously, in the Democratic Party, some in the Republican Party, but in the press worried about this transition process, uh, we've seen a transition process even worse than the one we're going through right now. And that was when FDR passed the presidency through death on to Harry Truman. But Truman was an extraordinarily quick learner um, and made the right decisions to help end the war against Hitler in Europe and then win the war in the Pacific. Um, and though the decision was controversial, uh, dropping the atomic bombs, I think most historians recognize he saved one to two million lives, uh, American and Japanese lives by doing it and shortened the war by about a year and a half. But soon after that, Winston Churchill uh, went to Westminster College in Missouri and made his uh, proclamation about the Iron Curtain that was descending across Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, and in February of 1947, uh, the British alerted the United States that they, were, that they were a spent empire, they were exhausted. Yes, they may have saved Western civilization in 1940 uh, in the Battle of Britain, but by 45, they were completely exhausted and had no money uh, to continue supporting Greece and Turkey and other countries that were under threat from Stalin and, and, and the Soviet Union. And so Truman had a decision to make and he acted very quickly uh, and he got his people together, the best and the brightest people, George, General George Marshall, who was his Secretary of State, but also was the, really the architect of winning World War II. You had Dean Acheson, who you brought up. Dean Acheson was the Under Secretary of State, who really was the architect of not only the Truman Doctrine, but also of NATO and also of all the things Truman did over the next few years to contain the Soviet Union, George Kennan, who wrote the long telegram on containment, uh, Averill Harriman, uh, who was ambassador of the Soviet Union, who knew so much about the Soviet Union because he had actually first been to Russia in 1899 when Nicholas II was czar. So Truman was wise enough to surround himself with the wise men, as, as Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas uh, called uh, his advisors, and then together, you're right, they put together a structure, um, an analytical construct uh, for foreign policy that we have followed 
for 75 years through nine presidents, both Republican and Democrat alike. The first president to divert from that uh, is the current occupant of the, of the White House, a guy that you and I know uh, pretty darn well, uh, Donald Trump. You know, it, it, it's fascinating. There's some great stories in here. One of the stories is uh, Truman not wanting to come to the phone uh, when uh, he's being told he's going to be the vice president. We're dropping Henry Wallace from the ticket. It was more left-leaning than Harry Truman. Harry uh, was told he was the second Missouri Compromise, uh, which you write about. You also put in the back of the book, which I would encourage people to read, the top secret memorandum from the State Department discussing what happened with the United Kingdom and the fact that the United Kingdom was running out of money and the U.S. needed to step up. Um, but I think the thing that really moved me, Joe, about the book uh, was Arthur Vandenberg, uh, who is not well known to contemporary Americans. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the great Republican senator from Michigan and his relationship with Harry Truman and how important that was to the origination of the Truman Doctrine. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you brought up Arthur Vandenberg because the Truman Doctrine was a success, but it was a bipartisan success. And I know it's, it's in vogue to be pessimistic. I've heard time and again, that our institutions were not going to hold up to whatever threats uh, they, they were under. I always knew the institutions would hold up. I always said the institutions would hold up. Um, I remember back when Ronald Reagan was president, uh, the, the, the head of the history department at the University of Alabama, I was a huge Reagan fan. I said, what do you think about Ronald Reagan? And he was quiet for a second and he said, well, I think America's strong enough to even survive eight years of Ronald Reagan. And I sat there horrified because I loved Reagan, but it was the first time I thought, hey, wait a second, people who respect each other, who like each other, um, can have completely different views um, about this country, the best way to move forward. So I always knew the institutions would hold. And um, I also am optimistic now. People are saying that there's no way Washington can ever work. There's no way Washington can ever be fixed. Listen, I, I think with Joe Biden, you have somebody um, like Harry Truman, who knows how Washington works, who built up friendships and relationships in the United States Senate and have built the relationships with Democrats and Republicans alike. And with Arthur Vandenberg, you actually had a Republican from, from Michigan who had opposed FDR and Harry Truman every step of the way on domestic matters. He was a dyed-in-the-wool isolationist uh, for, for most of his political career. But he and Harry Truman built a great relationship, and both of them understood that the United States couldn't make the same mistake that it made after World War I. And after World War I, 3 million Americans were in uniform, 114,000 were killed in combat, uh, and, and yet the Americans uh, came back home and once again reverted to isolationism, uh, refused to get involved in the League of Nations, refused to stay engaged in Europe, which created a void, which allowed for the rise of Adolf Hitler. Arthur Vandenberg understood that they couldn't repeat the same mistake after World War II. And so Truman 
and Vandenberg built this great relationship. But here's the thing about building bipartisan relationships in Washington, D.C. They actually take work. I mean, there was a reason when I was in, in, in Congress and was considered one of the most conservative members of Congress. I was a small government conservative. Uh, people in my own party thought I was too rabid when it came to balancing the budget. Um, but when I came into the chamber, I always went to the Democratic side of the chamber and I sat down with Democrats, I sat down with liberals, I worked with them because I knew I had to figure out a way to forge compromise on House bills. Harry Truman and Vandenberg understood that as well. And they had a great relationship. And it wasn't just between those two, it was also their staff members. At the end of every day, Walter Isaacson recounted in The Wise Men how Dean Acheson's uh, 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 staff members and Harry Truman's staff members at the end of the day would go and drive by Vandenberg's townhouse in Washington, D.C., that sit around, that have drinks, and they would keep Vandenberg updated with what Harry Truman and the White House had been doing that day. They were in constant communication and they got them engaged in, in the Truman Doctrine. So they felt like they actually had ownership of it, over it. That's why at the end, uh, when, it, when the votes were counted, most Republicans sided with Harry Truman, including Robert Taft, Mr. Republican, who, as you know, was one of the, the, the most hardcore isolationists in the United States Senate at the time. Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to bring up uh, Robert Taft, obviously the son of uh, President Taft. Um, and but he moved all these people. And so I guess one of the questions uh, that that I have is actually coming from someone who I'm very close to in Washington uh, asking, who is the Vandenberg to if Joe Biden is the Harry Truman, Joe, who is the Vandenberg in the Republican Party or is there not a Vandenberg? Well, I, I actually think we are. I think we are actually seeing a, a, a more of a centrist coalition starting to form in the Senate. The media loved to talk about how conservative the Senate had gotten when conservative members of the Republican Party were getting elected to the Senate. The story they didn't tell was how liberal, how progressive Democratic senators had become. There was a hollowing out of the center when you started having Democrats from red states uh, lose their races. And so you had progressives on the left, you had, had uh, conservatives on the right. But what we, what we see now after the 2020 election is, well, first of all, we saw the American people deliver a very clear message to Washington. And that message was, we don't trust either of you. We're going to elect a Democratic president because we're just exhausted by Donald Trump. But we're not going to turn the keys over to the, to the Democratic Congress. So we're, we're going to actually have a system of checks and balances. <clears throat> and so that's what you're having. And you also see it in the elections uh, in, in the Senate where you now have in Arizona two Democratic senators who are going to be more moderate because they're in a Republican state. Uh, you have a governor, former governor of Colorado, Governor Hickenlooper, who's also going to be a more moderate uh, pro-market Democrat. Um, you have out of West Virginia, you have Joe Manchin, who may be the, uh, uh, the basically the, the bane of progressives existence in the United States Senate, but there's another guy 
that's going to hold the middle ground in the Senate. Look on the Republican side. You have Susan Collins in Maine, who won her state by nine points, which is really incredible when you think about the fact Joe Biden won the state of Maine by nine points as well. So Susan Collins has every reason to sit down and make a deal with Joe Biden. Lisa Murkowski has already said she's going to do that, has already said she's going to support Joe Biden's uh, uh, selections to the cabinet, as long as they're not too extreme. Mitt Romney, you have Mitt there, some guy, a guy that you know very well and I know very well. So you've got six, seven, eight people that are going to be centrists who are, regardless of who win in, win in Georgia, which, which candidates win in Georgia, who are going to find a middle ground. Uh, so you may not just have one Vandenberg, you may have a series of Vandenbergs. And also, I have a prediction. I, it's, it, it is a, um, it may be a long shot, but I've known this guy since 1994. Um, I think Lindsey Graham is actually going to be looking for opportunities uh, to strike deals with Joe Biden as well. He's, he's safe for another six years in South Carolina. Um, he's a guy that was John McCain's, uh, one of John McCain's closest allies. Uh, and I think he's a guy who will do deals with, with Joe Biden so long as they're moderate. There, there's, a, there's a passage in the book uh, towards the end in the House Divided chapter, uh, which I actually highlighted, and it talks about the press. And it's, uh, it's President Truman, Joe, talking about the press. And I'm just going to read the first sentence uh, and take you there. I, I, I want to commend the press, he is saying. Uh, he's complimenting them on the manner in which they explain the program, the program to help Turkey and Greece which was the original concepts around the Truman Doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, and basically saying that he wanted to emphasize that it was important for the press to explain this type of legislation to the citizens. And so now I want to fast forward to where we are now with President Trump's relationship with the press. Do you think that that's repairable? Do you think that we can get back to that sort of uh, symphony between the government and the press and the press holding the government accountable without the government being so upset about that level of accountability? I think so. I, I think I, I, there have been elections where you, you look and you see where the media uh, has been much tougher on one candidate than another candidate. You have a lot of Democrats that are still kicking me around because they think that we were too tough on Hillary and her emails. Um, obviously, Trump supporters can look at the press coverage and see that obviously Donald Trump uh, was treated uh, much more uh, tough than Joe Biden was. I've had friends calling me up saying, well, why aren't you talking about Joe Biden's position on minimum wage or something like that? I said, well, it's kind of hard to get there when Donald Trump is telling his attorney general to arrest Joe Biden two weeks before the election. Um, there, there was always so much being thrown at the wall uh, and Donald Trump wanted us talking about him. That's why he was always, you know, it was shock and awe 24-7. Uh, um, I, think, I think you're going to have Joe Biden, who is sort of out from the old school, being much more respectful of the media. Um, one thing, though, that he needs to understand that I think sometimes Democrats don't understand as well as we, I say we Republicans, I used to be a Republican, um, 
is Republicans never go into the White House expecting to get a fair shot from the press because they're never going to get a fair shot from the press. I'm, I'm watching a documentary on Showtime right now on the Reagans, and I found out that because I support small government, I'm for trillionaires and I'm a racist. I mean, it's always biased against small government conservatives. The media is always, they don't understand. Most, most members of the media don't culturally understand um, what makes people conservatives. That said, um, I think the Clintons, I think the Obamas uh, were always shocked uh, when they got easier treatment during the campaigns, but then they got into the White House and found out that the White House press corps was going to be tough on them too. And so I think the Bidens uh, and the Biden team is going to see that press is going to hold them accountable, going to be very tough. But again, Joe Biden's old school. And so he's going to be respect, respectful to the press. And he, his, his view towards the media is, uh, reminds me of Alan Simpson, who used to be uh, Wyoming's Republican senator. And I remember Simpson early on in my career, uh, we were flying to back to Washington together on the plane. And he said, boy, here's the deal. You may not like them, but when the media calls, always return their damn call. Yeah. Do it the same day and just put up with it. You know, let them know that you're there. And, and I followed that advice and it was great advice. I mean, there's, there's a natural tension between the press and the presidency. Uh, Harry Truman understood that. Uh, Joe Biden understands that. Ronald Reagan understood that. Uh, but you, you, you got to deal with them. And hopefully you don't resort to using terms that Joseph Stalin uh, used against his political opponents. You don't call them enemies of the people. You, you, uh, you mentioned that you were, you're a former Republican. What do, you, what do you think the future is for the Republican Party in the aftermath? Uh, let's start on January 21st. Where do, you, where do you think the Republican Party's going, Joe? Well, I'm, I'm far more pessimistic about the Republican Party than most. I think a lot of people think the Republican Party can bounce right back. Uh, when I say demographics is destiny, uh, whenever I say that, people get shocked and stunned and uh, greatly saddened by it. It's just the reality. Demographics is destiny. I used to say that as it, as it related to Social Security and Medicare because I was worried about the explosion, the explosive growth of entitlement programs where you said have 15 people working in the 50s for every one person on Social Security. Uh, then we had three people working for every one person on Social Security and Medicare because of demographics. Soon it's going to be two people working for every one person on Social Security and Medicare. Those numbers don't add up. So that's how I used to talk about demographics testing. Now, when I look at the electoral map, I started saying four or five years ago, look at the electoral map, look at the demographic changes, and expect states in the Sun Belt like Georgia, Texas, and Arizona to start going blue. I didn't expect that to happen in 2020. I expected that to really start happening in 2024. But I think because of some of the extreme things that have been going on over the past several years, we've already seen Georgia and Arizona go blue. I don't think they're going to go, go back, go red again uh, for quite some time. Uh, Florida has actually become a, a more solidly red, which has been a real surprise. Um, uh, but, I, you know, Texas, let's just talk about demographics. In Texas, John Cornyn said nine Hispanic babies are being born for every white Caucasian baby that's being born 
uh, in the state of Texas right now. You look at the numbers, uh, compare, I, I brought up Reagan. My God, I think 75, 80% of Americans were white when Ronald Reagan was president. It's 60% now. Those demographic numbers change. And Donald Trump, okay, great. Donald Trump got 12% of the black vote. Big deal. He still lost 88% of the black vote. If Republicans keep running around cheering about losing nine out of 10 votes, that shows you what a bad situation they're in. And as far as Hispanics go, Republicans are bragging about getting 33% of the Hispanic vote. Anthony, you remember what George W. Bush got of the Hispanic vote in 2004? 45%. Yeah. So the numbers are going to keep breaking the Democrats' way. And I think, unfortunately, um, Republicans didn't listen uh, to the voters after 2012. We, I remember going to a national review post-mortem, and everybody was talking about what needed to be done uh, to, to get, get the Republican Party's arms around um, the demographic changes. I, I remember George W. Uh, George W. Bush telling us in Congress in 1999 in Coral Row, saying, hey, y'all need to get right with Hispanics. <laughs> and he was right. We did. And instead, Republicans spent the past four years doing whatever they could to offend uh, people of color. And even if Trump picked up one or two percentage points there, overall, the demographic wave is going to overtake them and let's say completely change uh, their approach to, to voter outreach. So I want you to channel the wise men in this book, wise men and women, and I want you to be the policy wonk of 2020 and 2021. What does the world need from the United States in terms of engagement? What does the world need from the United States in terms of a reset? And if there were a Biden doctrine as an example, uh, uh, that could help re-engineer the world and set it on a course. Uh, frankly, the Truman Doctrine set the world on a, a course of great peace and great global prosperity. It was uncertain at the time, and, 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 it, and it took 40 years before we brought down the Berlin Wall. But what would we need right now, Jill? Well, uh, the, the first thing we have to do is re-engage with our democratic allies. That's priority number one. We have to re-engage in a positive way with Canada. We have to re-engage, yes, with Mexico, an extraordinarily important trading partner. But we have to re-engage with Germany, uh, with France, with Britain, rebuild that special relationship. I think we can do it. Um, uh, re-engage with NATO in an aggressive way. I'm, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that that's gonna be the easiest part of, of uh, what, what lies ahead for Joe Biden, because I think these are countries, these democratic countries um, uh, need the United States. And I will say too, there's a part of me that is glad that over the past four years, some of our allies that said the United States needed to, to, to back off a little bit, understand what an indispensable country we are. We still are the indispensable power, the indispensable country in this world. So uh, the first thing we need to do is we, we, we need to reconnect in a strong, positive way with our allies. Uh, the second thing we need to do is we need to look at uh, 
what is, for better or worse, uh, going to be the most important relationship for this country over the next 40 years. We have got to have a sane, rational approach to our relationship with China. And yes, Barack Obama, uh, in his biography, said that perhaps um, he was a little too easy on China in, in some areas. Uh, but that said, we do not want to get locked into a second Cold War. Uh, you, select, you, you figure out the issue. I mean, whether you want to talk about the economy, whether you want to talk about the environment, whether you want to talk about human rights, uh, whether you want to talk about global stability, um, the United States and China are, whether we like it or not, we're going to be the two global powers dominating the world stage for the next 30, next 40 years. And so we're going to have to figure out a way to, yes, be tough with China, but at the same time, be engaged with China, have a rational relationship and not one that keeps them guessing and keeps the rest of the world guessing. So that's the second thing we do. Third thing we need to do is we've, we've, got, we've got to figure out exactly how we're going to address Russia uh, in the coming years. We've had three presidents now that have, uh, have, have miscalculated badly when, it's come to when it came to Vladimir Putin. Of course, George W. Bush saying that he'd looked into the eyes of Vladimir Putin and, you know, seen his soul and, and gave his endorsement. And, and then with Barack Obama, we, we obviously had him talking about having Hillary Clinton talking about the reset. And then with Donald Trump, well, um, it's hard to say exactly uh, what Donald Trump's relationship was with Vladimir Putin, but it is in Russia's best interest and it is in the United States' best interest for Russia to get themselves out of the corner. They don't, we're not going to be able to do it with, with, with carrots. I don't know that sticks alone are going to help, uh, but uh, you know, this, is, this is a guy who's, who invaded Georgia under George W. Bush, invaded Ukraine under Barack Obama, uh, and we need to figure out a way forward uh, with Russia. And I think, again, it's not going to be easy. It's going to take uh, diplomacy, a lot of hard work, but, but I think we can get there. And finally, we've got to figure out what we want to be when we grow up regarding trade. What kind of trading partner do we want to be uh, with, with not only Europe, but the rest of the world? And for God's sake, we need to reexamine TPP and, and get reengaged there. Yeah, I was a, you know, obviously I was a big fan of TPP, even when I was on the campaign with uh, then Mr. Trump, you know, he would go ballistic on you if you tried to explain to him the benefits of TPP and why that was going to help us contain China and make us more competitive and more powerful in the Pacific. But yeah. that's, that, that's for another that's for another day. I want to turn it over to John Darcy, who's got a ton of questions, got great audience engagement, uh, Joe. I'm not that self-promotional, as you know, right? So I'm not going to promote the book by putting it in front of everybody's face. See, look at that. I love it. Thank you so much. You know, it's a phenomenal book. I really enjoyed reading it. And uh, it's a time in our country where we should really look back and think about these men and women that brought themselves together, despite whatever their policy differences were, philosophical or otherwise, they knew how important it was to uh, progress the United States and put it in a position in the world where it couldn't be isolationist and it had to engage. But with that, John, uh, I'm gonna leave it over to you. 
Joe, if you have a communications director at Morning Joe and they go on vacation for 10 days or two weeks and you need Anthony to fill in, he's doing a great job promoting your book. So I love uh, it. Just keep that in mind. We have a bunch of questions. I'm going to filter through a few of them. It has to be for 12 days, Joe. I need to. I, I got to beat my last record. Okay, so much to, longer than that, my friend. Much make sure you know that, okay? Exactly. But we have a question about, you know, Trump is obviously still sort of going through the motions of fighting the election results. And we have an audience member who's curious about your opinion as somebody who knows him and has spoken with him a lot over the years about whether he legitimately believes that he was robbed of this election or this is all just part of his shtick to maintain some level of enthusiasm for whether it be Trump TV or a future political run. You know, um, and I, I call him Donald uh, just because that's what I've known him as for so many years. Uh, but Donald, um, Donald knows what he's doing. He always knows what he's doing. I remember one time, uh, I remember one time uh, calling him up during the Judge Curiel uh, controversy back in 2016. And I said, Donald, you, 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 you can't say that about a judge who's an, is an American. He goes, he's Mexican, he's Mexican. I said, no, 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 he's he was born in Indiana. He goes, no, no, Joe, you're wrong, he's Mexican. And Anthony knows it, he's sitting there. I go, Donald, Donald, who are you talking to here? Okay, I'm not blanking stupid, who are you talking to? And he got quiet for a second, he started chuckling, he goes, okay, he's American, but still. So, so he's always, He's always, you know, first of all, he doesn't want to be seen as a loser. He's always worried about what's next. And you think about this guy, I've always called him a day trader, but I think Maggie Haberman with the New York Times has it best, where Donald Trump has spent his entire life just trying to survive the next 10 minutes. Uh, that's how he lives. That's how he thinks. And so right now, he's just trying to survive the next 10 minutes and trying to get past the embarrassment as he said, of being one of the few Republicans on the national stage to lose. Uh, I, I, he's, and I also, listen, I don't think he's going to do Trump TV because it's too much work. I think he's going to try to figure out how to make quick money, fast money, easy money by uh, trading in his name and whatever else he can, he can trade in. Uh, right. so, so, but, but, but I, think, I think he'll talk about running in 2024. I'm you know, I'm very skeptical that he'd actually do that. So that, that sort of is a good segue to the next question that I want to ask you is how large do you think he'll loom within the Republican Party over the next four years? There's different theories about whether he's going to continue to be sort of the kingmaker in the party or whether his influence is going to wane and you're going to see new leaders emerge in the party and a less less of an emphasis on Trumpism and you know demographics being destiny. You're going to find voices that that embrace the idea of broadening the tent rather than the last gasp of sort of uh, some white grievance that that helped push him to victory. Yeah, I mean, it's a white grievance party right now. I can't believe I'm saying that about my former Republican Party because I was so resentful <laughs> and felt grievance when people would say that about the Republican Party. But that's where Donald Trump took the Republican Party over the past four years. And my God, four years from now, he's going to be even further away. They're going to be even further away from majority if they move in that direction. I think that's something that most Republicans will understand. I, 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 I do think he's going to have an impact over the next few years in the same way that Sarah Palin had an impact uh, in 2010. Uh, Sarah Palin, of course, had her own television show after, uh, after she and John McCain lost uh, their race in 2008. 
And there was a time when Sarah Palin could show up in 2010 and a great example of it, South Carolina. Nikki Haley was trailing in her race for governor there. Sarah Palin went, endorsed Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley won. And there were several uh, states in, in 2010, several races in 2010, where Sarah Palin had that impact, but it faded by 2012. I think we're going to find the same thing with Donald Trump. Donald Trump will be a force in the Republican Party uh, if, if things continue to play out uh, as, as they are right now over the next couple of years. But as we move to 2024, and as it becomes more obvious that Donald Trump is not going to be the, the nominee in 2024, you're going to find a Republican Party that's going to be scrambling to catch up with the realities of the electorate that they are going to find themselves facing in the 2024 election. Joe, are you going to be the nominee in 2024? Uh, not for the Republican Party, that's for sure. I, I don't think I could even get invited to a Reagan dinner. These I, I, but trust me, I'm a person on the non grata as well. So whatever party you're going into, I, I, I could use an invitation, Joe. All right, keep let, going. Let, 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 let's figure that out because we're both men without parties, men without countries right now. There's no, there's no question about that. It, it, it's lonely out here on the frontier, Scarborough. Exactly. And, and where you are in Jupiter, that's, you know, literally and figuratively becoming a Trump country down there. You know, you're probably you see, you're seeing him renovate his suite in Mar-a-Lago. So uh, maybe you guys will bump into each other at lunch down there. We, we have. Let me tell you something. We have Trump flags all over my neighborhood. Anytime I go out on a boat, there are Trump flags all over the place. Uh, I was thinking about putting up a flag that said Biden, bitches, because they, they were, you know, they're like, F your feelings, Trump 2020. No more BS, Trump 2020. Everywhere we went, there were Trump flags. But, you know, all, almost all of my childhood friends voted for Donald Trump. Uh, every, I think all of my family members voted for him. A couple of people lied and said they weren't voting, but I know they voted for him. 99% uh, of the people I see every day voted for Donald Trump. So um, I... I, I I don't quite understand why. Uh, it's not what I fought for as a conservative uh, for 25 years, as a Reagan and Thatcher conservative for 25 years. But, you know, they voted for him. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens four years from now. Last question. Uh, you know, you can provide a quick answer here. Do you think Biden's up for the job? You talked earlier about how uh, you see some Republican senators that are likely to push for compromise. Obviously, you have other Republican senators who are already laying the ground for, groundwork for the type of obstructionism that you saw in, in parts of the Obama presidency. Do you think Biden, you know, he's talked a lot about wanting to compromise and wanting to bring things back to the center. Do you think he's going to be successful in healing these divisions that are in our society and healing our credibility on the world stage? Or do you think, you know, we're on an inevitable spiral towards more division and more isolationism? I think Joe Biden is, I'm, I'm, I have believed for a very long time that, uh, that this country has been blessed and uh, that the right leaders have come along at the right time. I think after Richard Nixon, um, somebody that, by the way, my family, my father loved, my family loved, but after Richard Nixon, um, I think we were blessed as a nation to have Gerald Ford and then, yes, Jimmy Carter come along and heal this country. You had two leaders that Americans trusted, even if they thought Jimmy Carter wasn't up to the job by the end of it. Um, you had two fundamentally decent men in the White House. 
And I think Joe Biden is going to, to, to fill that role as we move forward. I, he, he, will, uh, he, he will be able to talk to Republicans, bring Republicans to the table. Of course, at the end of the day, it's going to be up to Mitch McConnell on whether he wants to, to make a deal and get things done. That Joe Biden understands he can't listen to the progressives in his party. He can't listen to the left wingers in his party and get things done. I know that makes a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of people at my network and a lot of a lot of progressives in Washington angry. It's just the reality. As Bismarck said, politics is the art of the possible. Joe Biden understands that. Also, is is Joe Biden up to the job? I I know I heard from a lot of my friends, oh, I can't vote for Joe Biden because uh, he's not he's not all there mentally. I'll just say I heard that quietly uh, from Democrats at the beginning of this process. Uh, and yet Joe Biden outperformed all expectations every step of the way um, and uh, shocked the progressives, shocked progressive Twitter, uh, was almost run out of the race, one in South Carolina, one on Super Tuesday and got better. Uh, as he went along. And by the way, it's not Joe Biden who um, who made a disaster of the debate. You know, it's Donald Trump who, right. who who acted miserably in the first debate. And I think most Republican strategists, the smartest Republicans I know, say that Donald Trump lost the presidency uh, because of the first debate, that if he had had if he had acted in the first debate like he did in the second debate, he probably would have beaten Joe Biden. So Biden has done what he's needed to do to win. And I think he'll do what he needs to do to govern. He's been there since he was 29 years old. He knows Washington, D.C. He knows its players. He knows what's possible. He knows what's not possible. And so I'm optimistic that we actually may get some things done in Washington for the first time in a long time. Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Anthony, do you have a final word before we let Mr. Scarborough go? You know, we're going to let Joe have the final word, but I'm going to hold up the book again, Saving Freedom. Joe, congratulations on the book. It's uh, a bestseller on Amazon and across the United States. And uh, I'm already getting messages into my phone that people are buying it for Christmas, Joe. So God bless you with the book. And uh, hopefully we can see you soon in a non-virtual setting. Maybe we'll get you to one of our SALT conferences someday when we can get out of the uh, pandemic. But Mary- no, I'm looking forward to it. And, and let me ask you this, because um, I'm always, when I give speeches, uh, I spend the time before the speeches, you know, the non-virtual speeches, and I'll talk to everybody around the table. How's it going? What's happening with your business? What's going- and and I, it's amazing what you learn by doing that. So if you don't mind, if you'll just, uh, if you'll indulge me here to, to, ask you about 2021, because it's, it's very interesting. When I talk to business owners around Florida, and I'm talking about people that own 30 restaurants and own shopping malls and own strip malls and own commercial real estate and own, you up and down the food chain, or somebody that just owns one or two restaurants or one or two small businesses, uh, they have a very grim outlook on 2021. And they say they see bad times coming and their advice to me, unsolicited advice, is hold on to your cash because cash is going to be king in 2021 because we're going to start seeing the dominoes falling from everything that's happened this year. 
Um, it's, it's a pretty pessimistic take. When I talk to the top bankers, you know, that are, that are running the big Wall Street banks, they'll go, oh, no, we're going to do fine. I, I, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts, Anthony? So, so Joe, I'm in an interesting position because right? I own a I own a business in New York City, a restaurant called the Hunt and Fish Club. Maybe someday we'll get you there. We can get it oh, back. I'd love to be there. And we've got to close right now. Uh, and we own this business where we've got about eight billion dollars in capital under management, which we've been running for 15 years. And so, what you're referring to is a K. What's going on? So the bankers and the Wall Streeters are going up, and the small business owners and the small proprietors and people in middle income are going down. And so that's a K shape of a recovery. Uh, but I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, for the small business people. Uh, I would have loved to have seen an Andrew Yang style massive stimulus. I wrote about this in March. They were talking about a one to $2 trillion stimulus. I said it had to be at least three or four. John actually helped me co-author that uh, editorial. Uh, and we need another big, stimulus right now. And what I would say to you is that we're at war. We just happen to be at war with an invisible molecule. Imagine if I said to you there was a sovereign nation that killed 250 plus thousand Americans and has killed 1,200 Americans a day. They're on, they've made a land invasion into the United States. They killed a quarter million Americans. They're wounding 100 or so, 150,000 a day, killing an additional 1,200. How much money would we spend? How much of our nation's resources would we put together to fight that war if it was a homeland invasion? And so for me, I'm really just strongly encouraging people in government to think bigger, think bolder, go back to the Second World War. Uh, we were borrowing 20 to 25% of the GDP back then. Uh, and yes, we have huge deficits. I've heard you talk about it on Morning Joe, the irony that the Republicans are going to be constrained on deficit spending now, even though they were drunken sailors uh, over the last four years. But we need a massive stimulus, Joe. If you get that stimulus, my opinion is going to be more like the bankers and less like the small business people, because as the economy recovers, I'll take you back to the, the 1920s. Uh, right after the global pandemic in 1918, 1919, we had, a, we had the roaring 20s. We can get back there. There's a tremendous amount of pent-up consumption. So long-term, I'm optimistic, but I really do think we need a massive stimulus right now. Uh, and I'm a long-term conservative, but when you're at war, you got to throw that playbook out the window and you got to use the government for what it's supposed to be there for is to defend the health and prosperity and safety of its citizens. All right. All right. So how's that? That's fantastic. I appreciate right. it. Yeah, there's no distance between me and this camera, Scarborough. That's why I'm able to, you know. Rock that was Anthony's stump speech for 2024, Joe. So if you right. want to be a surrogate on the on the campaign trail, uh, we'll sign you. I'll be the Manhasset dog catcher in 2024, Joe. I, I love it. I, I'm on that campaign. Let me know where to send the check. But just let me know if you need a comms director. I need to get at least 12 days of my contract. Okay. I, I can do it. All right. Thank you so. Right. Thanks so much, Joe. Great job. seeing you. God bless on the book and uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Merry Christmas to you guys. Thank you.